Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book 2 Free Will and Other Compulsions A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Derek Moore Rachel Underhill Andrea Fender Chris Lester Lauren Harris T. Morris Kitty McKeon Dave Robertson With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence Listener discretion is advised And now Episode 10 Hello, this is Kitty McKeon You probably already know who I am by now And this is the story so far Trapped between a heritage she loathes and a client desperate for access to her family's power, Marianne Shelley wants nothing more than escape. But as the world moves around her, her time may be running out. Meanwhile, on the trail of a dead spy, private investigator Jim Hartman's lust for truth leaves him hungering for something more substantial. And now, episode 10 of Free Will and Other Compulsions. Chapter 6 Luna City, Luna 24 November, 2129 Scott Walter's flat had been gone over more times than a college term paper. Jim's first impression walking through the door was that he'd walked into the site of a looting. A massive hole in the floor, probably where Reeves' boys had pulled the computer core, cabinetry in disarray, most surfaces showing disturbances in the dust where someone or other had moved it, examined it, or fondled it in the last couple months. Jim was only here in the name of being thorough, but all doubts about the usefulness of revisiting a location so thoroughly despoiled by Reeves and the Green Lady, and God knew who else, evaporated as he reconciled the timelines in his head. Scott Walters had left Luna in early August for parts unknown to his friends, According to the briefing Reeves had given Jim upon arrival day before yesterday, Briggs alleged that he turned up on Nineveh to cash in on a bounty. The records Reeves had given Jim seemed to support it. It showed an ongoing relationship between Scott Walters and someone at Briggs's bar Phalanx, and Nineveh Docking Control confirmed entrance and exit visas for one Scott Walters on August 17th and October 14th, respectively. Scott Walters, according to Luna City Security Services, met his end in an airlock at the far eastern end of Grissom Spaceport on November 9th. The man had a bad habit of being near bomb sites, and both sites were places where Walters had worked or done business. It was a safe bet that he'd set the bomb in Phalanx, some kind of pathological revenge kink he had about people he worked with. Unless, of course... Briggs had planted that one there to distract suspicion from himself. But Jim didn't buy that. It didn't pass the sniff test. One serial bomber present at both locations made a lot more sense. So who was this man who would collect a large sum of money one week and then self-immolate the next? It wasn't unprecedented in the history of terrorism and warfare, but there was usually a damn good reason, psychotics aside, and Walter's targets were too politically incendiary to be the mere indulgences of a fetishist. The bomb at Nineveh had put three very well-placed trillionaires in the hospital. Which left a fairly obvious question. Who was Walter's working for, and why? 
Reeves had nominated Briggs for the position. Allie would have too, he was sure. Jim wouldn't be half sorry to get the fucker over a barrel himself, come to think of it. But Briggs claimed he was framed, and helping to secure a frame job wouldn't fulfill the terms of Jim's contract. There were plenty of things Briggs deserved to be spaced for, one more wouldn't change Jim's existing verdict on him. Trying like hell to break the frame was, as far as Jim could see, the only way to do his job properly. Either Briggs was lying, in which case they already had their mole in hamburger form in the morgue, or he wasn't, in which case it was safe to assume that Walter's computer core had been doctored by parties unknown. Data forensics claimed to be able to tell if a computer core had been tampered with. Jim's understanding of physics said otherwise. In a tie between experts with a high hourly rate and basic high school science, Ty went to the science as far as he was concerned. Besides, he'd defeated data forensics on several occasions. Social engineering was his remaining tool, disentangling Walter's connections and movements from the source. He wasn't after financial records or computer cores or links to terrorists in the obvious places. Jim was after something altogether subtler. Judging by the remains in the kitchen, Walters had a penchant for Greek and Hungarian food, but he didn't cook it himself. Not a promising sign. It was a mere prejudice, maybe, but Jim figured that people who subcontracted out their cooking to food preservers were just as likely to subcontract their consciences to fanatics. It had been far too long since Jim had cooked a proper meal. He'd need to do something about that. A whiff of cumin stirred a longing in him that he couldn't quite decipher. Maybe he just needed to grab lunch soon. Perhaps some goshed at that Indian place down next to the fab lab at the end of the corridor. Probably a good thing that he hadn't eaten, though. In the bedroom, the religious paraphernalia tested the strength of Jim's stomach, but he held it. If he was going to understand, he needed to overlook the personal insult that the heretical sect represented. A thorough search of the bedroom took two hours. It netted him a cache of photos and keepsakes, which Jim stowed in his satchel for careful examination later. A close pass over the bathroom and another over the living room revealed nothing new, just a couple months' worth of dust that had been disturbed in all the obvious places by... But Walters had been on Luna only two weeks ago. He'd have found his apartment in disarray. He'd at least have slept in his bed. The customs logs showed he was in Luna City for a full two days before he did his impersonation of an overshaken champagne bottle. So where did he sleep? And why didn't he come home at all? After all, he hadn't trashed his own apartment. Going by the Green Lady's report, he'd left it in the kind of comfortably messy state one might do if going away for the weekend. Everything she'd told Jim about what she found led him to believe that Walters had intended to return. Jim squatted down and started a deeper search into the kitchen, not just surveying the food Walters kept in his fridge, now all long spoiled, or the spices in his drawer, but doing a full catalog. Rice, dry goods compatible with Mediterranean cuisine, soy sauce and fish flakes, produced on Luna, so not too expensive, but definitely not something one would keep around if one wasn't into Far Eastern food. And behind the rice and dry goods, a bag of Mother Goddess cat meal, a recent expiration date. This food would have been fresh when Walters left for Nineveh. A man, particularly a man so social as Walters seemed to be, would have come home to see his cat when he got back on planet, and surely would have come home one last time before he killed himself. He would have tried to find the cat a new home, and he'd have sent the cat food with it. 
So where was the cat? Lunch. Rogan Josh with Nan at the cafe in the main passage. The hot and sweet and earthy on his tongue gave Jim a bubble around his awareness. A place where he could take stock and consider his next moves. Wrapped in the smells and tastes of a Far East that once was, the constant, low-level worry about Allie ebbed away, making room for his immediate concern to shine on his consciousness as if it were the only thing in the universe that mattered worth a damn. Walters kept a cat, no question. There hadn't been cat hair in the apartment, but that didn't necessarily mean anything. Non-shedding breeds were popular in some circles back home, and Jim assumed they'd be de rigueur in an environment where the air supply had to be filtered deliberately. The cat food and the cat scratches on the bag and the scars from cat claws he'd found at the base of the sofa's legs left no doubt about the essential felinity of the place. On Earth, if you lost a cat, you put up posters, bought some Kleenex for your kids, and then got a new cat after a respectable period of mourning. If you had a tracking device on the cat, you could find it again, but cats' owners didn't often chip their cats even when the law required it. As a philosophical matter, many saw cats as free agents who occupied a house so long as it suited them, rather than mere pets, so they didn't generally fancy putting the things on a leash. Here, though, on Luna... He didn't know. With all the space in ducts and pipes and industrial spaces, there surely wasn't any way to effectively canvas a neighborhood with posters. You'd have to go up and down several levels, and then... who knew? But the mint chutney made everything manageable. Good mint chutney always had that special power. Jim scooped a bit on a papadom and nibbled. A little on the sour side and not quite hot enough, but that didn't matter. Spice was the variety of life, and variety in spices made life bearable. If he was a local, he'd know how to find a lost cat. Not being a local himself, he needed to borrow one. Excuse me, miss. He flagged down the waitress, an antsy girl in her late teens. If I can ask kind of a strange question. Sure. She shrugged with the kind of utter apathy that only teenagers seemed able to affect properly. I just moved up here from Earth last summer, and my little girl's cat disappeared. She's with her mother for the school year, and I need to find tittles before she gets back. Oh! The waitress's brow wrinkled in concern. Well, did you bring her with you? Jim nodded. They put her through quarantine? The whole three weeks? Yeah. They'll have a bug in her. Just go down to the security office and tell them, you know, that she's missing. Oh, thanks! Jim produced a Locks 20 script from his pocket and passed it to her. She brightened. Don't fret one bit. You need anything else? You tell me, okay? I'll do that. Jim winked at her. She blushed. It had been a while since he'd made a woman blush with a wink. It made him feel almost as alive as the food did. Or maybe just a little bit more. Chapter 7. Washington, D.C. 5 December, 2129. The thing about the human brain, even one so young it hadn't yet faced the choices offered by the enhancement industry, is its fondness for patterns. For some people, it's nursery rhymes, earworms, and proverbs that tend to get caught as the rest of language passes through. 
Marion's brain, against her conscious wishes, seemed to operate that way with email addresses. At least, email addresses with mnemonic names slipped into her pocket by mysterious men in restaurants. Throwing the slip of paper in the gutter a week ago Monday hadn't done much to curb Marion's curiosity. Icicle at gelato.net It stuck in her mind as the surreal mental image of an icicle sticking up from a scoop of gelato like an arctic Eiffel. Oh, it stuck with her all right, and not because he was all that cute. The sheer phallic potential of the image was telling her it had been far too long since she'd gotten laid, or maybe it was just too silly for words, one or the other. But not because he was cute. No siree, Bob. Whatever it was, it kept her awake in bed until three in the morning, kicking herself for all her little missteps at lunch. The two days between hadn't been much better. When she woke up this morning, she found herself glad that the dream about sending midnight emails when she was half awake and lonely had just been a dream. It had just been a dream, right? The reply that showed up in her inbox at 10 a.m. begged to differ. So did the butterflies that hatched en masse in her stomach when she saw it come in. She didn't open it. If she read it, she might have to compose a reply. Besides, it wasn't important enough to interrupt her workday with, so she pushed it to the back of her mind where it stayed put for almost five minutes, only bothering her between thoughts with flashes of the mysterious Mr. Icicle sitting there in the restaurant, writing. Okay, he was that cute, and he didn't belong in that restaurant with all those pages and lobbyists milling around. She liked things that didn't belong. They made for a refreshing change from the prescribed formality that made up the rest of life. Eleven o'clock found her meeting with Loxcor reps. Loxcor was one of the firm's headliner clients, and they were in her Department of Industrial Trade Regulations, but she normally recused herself. With a father heading up space affairs, lobbying on behalf of Loxcor could cast a conflict of interest shadow over him. Now she'd be happy to cause him problems. Anything she could do to twist his cold, self-concerned face trying to tell her to buck up and play the dutiful daughter demanding she protect his image when it was her husband who'd just been murdered, and for no reason, nothing at all, just because he'd been her husband, that was all. So the senator could rot in hell. She'd gladly have traded the sperm he donated to make her in the first place if she could be assured she'd never have to speak to him again. Miss Shelley, pleased to meet you. The woman nearest to her stood up her smartly tailored orange sari suit popping in the cool blue winter light filtering through the windows. Marion took the proffered hand and shook it as Jana finished the introductions. This is Guillermo Cheng from the Los Angeles office, Hector Cromwell from London, Asa Asari from Niger, Anir Chandra Saikar from our Ceylon office, and Felicia Knight from our home base at First Town. The pained woman nodded to Marion but did not rise. Gravity sickness, probably. Marion returned the nod and took her seat on the opposite side of the table, next to Jana. May I get you any refreshments? Jana looked to Felicia Knight. Something to make you more comfortable? Nothing. Ms. Knight shook her head once, sharply. We must move quickly. The lights dimmed and the conference screen lit. You haven't seen this yet. Images of a crowd pressed like sardines filled the screen. The signage identified the place as the Grissom Spaceport in Luna City and it was packed with people as far as the eye could see. It's been going on for a month. At first it was just a peaceful protest, but now it started bogging things down. 
Marion had more or less heard what was going on, but couldn't keep up with her notes. The email kept bobbing to the top of her mind like an apple, and every time it did, she felt a warm rush up her thighs and through her stomach, which then immediately brought the rush up to her face. Good thing she wore full makeup in the winter to protect her skin. The message from Mr. Icicle, a bolded line on an otherwise plain type list, sat there in her inbox, taunting her. Nobody would know if she responded from her PPD. Nobody in the world. And if she did, then maybe she could concentrate. She resisted the constant tickle in her mind, goading her to open it, but she couldn't quite bring herself to close the app until a more appropriate time. Ms. Knight continued, This is Luna's city, but it's also happening. The slide flipped. In Tycho City, in Darkside, in First Town, and several other settlements, and on a smaller scale, on the Ring. The sheer traffic jam has already held up He-3 and less vital shipments for two weeks. We're bringing the secondary mass driver online to help fix the problem, but we don't expect it'll make much of a difference. She clicked the slides off. I'll be frank with you. If our delivery schedule continues to be disrupted, then the penalties we pay to our big customers could bankrupt the cooperative. At the words, bankrupt the cooperative, Marion's full attention jumped from her PPD to the room. Loxcore's bankruptcy would spell chaos for U.S. foreign policy, let alone national security. Time to deal with the distractions. She opened the email responding to her note last night, which, after God knew how many rewrites and redactions, simply read, Love piano. Friday's great. He'd sent, Speakeasy jazz piano. 8 p.m. Friday. Long way off. Anytime sooner free? She typed out a quick, Dinner tomorrow? And hit send. There. Now her bonobo brain should calm down and let her work. All told, it had cost her less than 20 seconds. Considering the hours of fretting she'd spent avoiding it, she felt suddenly silly. Ms. Knight switched to a new slide showing the ruined mass of a radio tower. To make matters worse, sabotage continues on the lunar colony. Inadequate police and a bored population make trouble. This bombing here, which happened a scant five days ago, has halved the traffic capacity of the Lunar City spaceport... Which, as you may know, is the major staging area for our more volatile products. Now... She blanked the screen and leaned forward over the podium. Normally, this would be a minor problem. But a rumor has taken hold among the loonies that Loxcore is part of a conspiracy to keep them down. And they're boycotting Loxcore products and dumping Lox vouchers on the bond market. If you'll look at the first of the files in your packet... She gave Marion and Jana a moment to look it up then continued with a full-screen version of it on the next presentation slide. This is SB243, which authorizes immediate emergency funding to the tune of $360 billion from the Federal Reserve to LoxCorp on a six-month turnaround basis. Unless we receive the cash injection by the release of quarterlies on December 25th, the LOX will be downgraded from AAA status, and we may face a run. I don't have to tell you the kind of cascade this could set off through the U.S. industrial and energy infrastructure. This cash drain would also make us unable to meet other debt obligations without placing large blocks of Lox core voting stock on the open market. 
We believe the Space Affairs Committee will agree that keeping Loxcor out of the hands of foreign interests, or revolutionaries, is in the best interest of the United States. Jana nodded and scribbled at her PPD as she said, So, I'll see about getting you in with some of the ranking members of the committee by week's end. We'll need to get some press releases. No. Ms. Chandra Sekar cut her off. No press. No media of any kind on the cash infusion. This happens strictly under QT. Jana cocked her head to the side. Press could provoke a run on the locks and exacerbate the situation. Which is, after all, only a temporary budget shortfall, other things being equal. Ms. Knight picked up the baton again. But if we don't get this passed, and fast... She let the thought hang unfinished in the air before Ms. Chandrasekhar picked it up. Then we can't be held responsible for the consequences to you as foreign policy that might result. Okay, fast it is. Jana set her stylus down and looked at Marion. Can you help us out? Marion nodded. I'll do what I can to get you a hearing with Shelley. Excellencio. Now, Ms. Knight, do you have a White House agenda or should we formulate some options? Hector? Ah, yes, thank you. We shall need an appointment with the President to discuss the possibility of a temporary declaration of martial law in the colony, to rein in the dissidents and restore order so the supply chains can reopen. Guillermo, you have the... Right here. We're looking at a three-stage operation here. Mr. Chang handed out some packets. Lunar city security should be adequate to basic infrastructure protection, but they're not useful for crowd control. Stage one will see them deploy to oversee repairs to the damaged communication arrays. Meanwhile, we propose deploying National Guard units from ring station to manage customs to help stem the flow of illegal weapons and munitions through Lunar City. Should the situation escalate, we will move to stage two. Hannibal and Julius is a private military firm operating out of a base on the South Pole near First Town. They've assured us access to a detachment to help manage civil unrest should the revolutionary forces attempt to turn the current wave of popular protests into riots. Marion's email app flashed silently. She ignored it. Stage three will require three U.S. heavy cruisers to defend against any attempt by the Persian fleet to take advantage of the situation and seize the ring or blockade the moon. Hector? This is where we will need press work. We'll need a number of articles published in the major outlets over the next couple weeks, agitating for a speedy response to the terrorist actions. We'll need spots on the major vidcasts for our spokespeople, some time on TGN. It's imperative that the public is behind the action when the President orders it. We'll need access to the Secretary of State this afternoon. That shouldn't be a problem. He owes us a couple of favors. Over the next couple hours, the firm's new star clients hashed out the details of their campaign with Jana and Marion. As this was the office poet's first post as lead dog, and Marion wanted to keep as much distance from Senator Shelley as possible, she kept silent for most of the time and took notes. With the complexity and urgency of the plan, she expected she'd also be listening to the recordings in her sleep for the next several days to make sure she got it all. By two o'clock, Mr. Chang was on the way to the White House and Mr. Cromwell was at the TGN Washington Bureau prepping for an interview with Trent Alcock. Marion decided on a snack at her desk rather than heading out for lunch and finally allowed herself to check her email again. Dinner tomorrow. Maritz's on Potomac. With less hesitation than she expected of herself, she typed, Delighted. Rather than send the senator a full report, as was customary, 
She dashed her father's chief of staff, Lenny Munoz, a quick note that Loxcor was in town and would want to meet. She added a PS asking him not to let her father contact her. Then she took her scarf and gloves and excused herself for an afternoon constitutional. It is an old rule of politics that crises create opportunities. Marion, not being willing to wait any longer to use her traditional access to the corridors of power, had spent the month she'd been back developing alternate avenues into the Space Affairs Committee. This latest crisis gave her exactly the opportunity she'd been praying for. Once she lost herself among the trees edging the mall, Marion put her headset in her ear and spoke to the dialer. Call Senate Minority Whip Samuel G. Sollen. She fiddled with her wedding ring while the call went through. With a little luck, her father was about to have a rotten day. You've been listening to Episode 10 of Free Will and Other Compulsions, Book 2 of the Antithesis Progression, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer, with original music by Danny Shade, and produced by Kitty McKeon, Paul Streeler, and J. Daniel Sawyer. This episode starred Derek Moore as Jim Hartman, Rachel Underhill as The Waitress, Veronica Jaguer as Marion Shelley, Andrea Fender as Jana, Kitty Nakian as Anir Chandrasekhar, Lauren Scribe Harris as Felicia Knight, T. Morris as Guillermo Chang, Chris Lester as Hector Cromwell, and Dave Robison as Blake. Sound design and Foley library furnished by Artistic Whispers Productions with some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. This podcast is recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Lincoln City, Oregon. The book is copyright 2009 to 2010, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the production is copyright 2016, Artistic Whispers Productions. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. So, hello again! A lot of you are wondering, what the hell has been going on around here? Or, you know, around there, there being here. I'm sure you're not wondering what's going on around your house unless you have accidentally opened an interdimensional portal and portal aliens are flying through and causing all sorts of problems with your scheduling and your pantry. As far as what's been going on around here? Well, frankly, a lot. A lot more than I could ever have suspected might come into play at this point in my life. The biggest things on my plate right now are this podcast, writing the next book in this series, and writing a spin-off book that just asserted itself, goddammit, and designing and building the AWP corporate offices. Okay, office, singular. And by designing and building, I mean, like, actually building a building. Some of the big things happening this fall necessitate building a new building to house AWP and doing it now, so I've been up to my bald spot in architecture books, refreshing myself on everything I know about building codes, and spending so much time in CAD programs that it would make a protractor motion sick. And that's to say nothing of making sure I've got my full inventory of tools because I'm going to be doing this by hand, because that's what you do when you're on a budget. When I haven't been doing that, or doing the client work that keeps the lights on, and soon puts the walls up, I've been roaming the countryside sourcing materials because, really, if you're going to do something this nuts, you may as well do it with some character and style. 
As far as where I'm sourcing my materials, well, I like to talk about how disreputable I am, but I don't know if you want to know about this just yet. It's going to be pretty gnarly. Fun, but gnarly. I did get two pieces of feedback this week, which I'm not going to hold for a dealing in, because these pieces of feedback kicked my ass into kicking the company's ass to get this episode pushed out the door, finally. Simon said, So, it's one episode a year, and then went on to razz me, justifiably. He says, I thought you'd said it was in the can, what the hell's going on? So, yeah, I did say we had the next few episodes in the can. Turns out that in the can doesn't mean in the can when your raid goes down, and you have one assistant scamper off on a family emergency, taking the asset lists along for the ride by accident, and all your corporate officers have to go out of state for a few weeks to get their heads around a brand new and terrifyingly weird series of strategic obstacles. You know how everything's been going weird in Europe and, well, everywhere else the last few months? Well, it's been happening here on a microscopic level. I'm not saying I've been going out and protesting myself in the streets, or my partner and assistants have been organizing revolutions against me or voting to leave the company, but it's almost that weird. And it has played holy hell with my writing, and it's been all hands on deck here at AWP just keeping the ship afloat. So the only podcasting I've been doing with any regularity is NaNoWriMo Every Month at NaNoWriMoEveryMonth.com, and that's only because it's one voice, short episodes, and completely off the cuff. And even that's been a struggle. All of which is to say, Hooray! We finally got an episode out! And I'll try to make you wait not nearly so long for the next one. Simon goes on to say, Please give us a reasonable update on what's happening, as I was looking forward to more. Simon, you're right. And I hope this goes some way towards making things right, or at least less wrong, between us being me, the author and producer, and you, the audience. Thank you for sticking in and for speaking up. It really does help. And somehow, somehow, come hell or high water or roofing accidents on the upcoming build, we will get more episodes out, and considerably more than one per year. I swear it! This week I also got a note from Jason, who will be playing a mysterious Australian spymaster in an upcoming episode. He says... Look at what's going on in Turkey! Rise of the Persian Empire? Crazy times! And god, I hope I didn't butcher that accent. I'm a bit out of practice. Crazy times for sure! And a few hours after I got that note, the coup failed. The world has gotten weird. You can't even have a decent military coup anymore without a whole bunch of your subjects live-blogging you. That's going to make the emerging age of global disorder very interesting indeed, I think. And I'm still a little uncomfortable at just how blind lucky I got at predicting this future. It really wasn't through any skill, I swear. Just crazy luck, and I'm not really sure whether it's bad luck or good luck. But it does make keeping up with the craziness interesting in a professional capacity rather than just interesting in a personal capacity. I think the time has come to admit to myself that I'm writing books about geopolitics as an excuse to keep tabs on geopolitics, which otherwise takes far too much time out of my writing schedule and other things. Thank you, everyone, for coming back and hearing this installment. Thank you, thank you for your support on the Patreon and through your emails. 
And by the way, if you aren't on the Patreon yet and want to help out, remember that you only get charged when I actually release an episode. So just click on the Patreon button on my homepage at jdsawyer.net or leave a tip in the PayPal tip jar. And remember that a portion of all donations goes to keep the amazing music coming from our composer, Danny Shade. So send questions, comments, attaboys, and the increasingly popular death threats to feedback at jdsawyer.net. And when we've got enough, we're gonna do another dealing in. Can't wait to make those a regular thing again. Hell, I can't wait to make any of this a regular thing again. I'm coming. I'm coming back, I swear. Somehow. So spread the word. Tell your friends, your family, anyone you want to disturb, upset, entertain, and pelt your enemies with memory stick copies to get people hooked. And do keep your eyes on the feed for the next episode, which is coming as soon as humanly possible. Until then, I leave you with the nagging questions. Where did the cat go? And what secrets will Jim uncover when he tracks it down? Who is the mysterious jazz connoisseur? What role will Marion play now that she's back in the political game? And how will that factor into her father's plans? Find out next time. And until then, remember, it isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game.